Isaiah chapter 10, please. Isaiah chapter 10. Our text will be the last half now of this particular chapter. Not exactly half, but almost half, about uh, from verses 20 through 34, <clears throat> concluding chapter 10 this evening. As we have been looking at the beginning of chapter 10 and the judgment that is to come upon Assyria, there is a change, a somewhat of a new chapter title within this particular judgment. And it has to do with the remnant of Israel. And in verse 20 of chapter 10 of Isaiah, it says, And it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel and such as have escaped of the house of Judah, I'm sorry, of Jacob, will never again depend on him who defeated them, but will depend on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. The remnant will return, the remnant, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. For though your people, O Israel, be as the sand of the sea, a remnant of them will return. The destruction decreed shall overflow with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a determined end in the midst of all the land. Shall we pray? Father, as we draw near to your word this evening, we pray for the anointing and the blessing and the outpouring of your Holy Spirit upon each person that is here today. Lord, that we would understand and clearly know what these verses mean when it comes not only to the time for which it was written initially, but how that prophecy as well is for us today because of its complete fulfillment that is yet to come. I pray, Father, that through the Holy Spirit we will not only have this truth established in our hearts, but that we ourselves will be moved to turn to You, Lord God, to quit depending upon the flesh, to quit depending upon others, and to begin to depend upon you fully and totally and completely until the day of Christ. And we ask, Lord, these things tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. It has been said by 
some very careful observers of the days that we are now in, that we are living in the most exciting times that have been and will ever be, simply because we may be the generation to see the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to this earth. Now, I don't know what that does to you, but it excites my heart to think that that may just very well be possible. As a matter of fact, that is what we are to be looking for, is the soon return of Jesus Christ. Now, let me just kind of interject here that there would be those who would not be looking for that because their hearts aren't where God wants them to be. And I would really encourage them to get their hearts right with the Lord because He's not waiting. He'll come when He comes. There's a timetable and God will follow that timetable. And we can't play around with the timing of God. We need to get our hearts right with the Lord. We need to be ready right now. Because the Lord can come at any moment for His church. Look at the very fact that for some people today, the Lord has already come. And so, we are, to a certain extent, living in the most exciting times that have been and will ever be. But those exciting times are certainly substantiated and they are enhanced by the very fact that the nation of Israel exists as God said that it would. And that the very prophecies surrounding the threats to the people of Israel are being extremely and accurately fulfilled. Now, I'm very careful in using these particular words because it makes no sense to me whatsoever for people to have believed in Christ, to have known that the promises of Jesus Christ would soon come to pass and then come to a point where they start doubting and start really completely not believing the things that Jesus said He would do. And begin to follow after other paths, other ways, other philosophies, other thoughts, other religious uh, persuasions, other than the perfect and complete and pure Word of God. It makes no sense to me because we see something that has happened in our day and time that a lot of people said would never happen. That there would be a people called Israel that would be back in their land, and the Jews being back in their land is completely and totally significant. That they would be back in the land speaking the original Hebrew language, which many thought would have just died with the Jews as they scattered into all the nations of the earth. The very fact that there is a nation of Israel, the very fact that people have desired to wipe them off the face of the earth, and they're still there, should be significant to us that God's promises are true, 
and that if Jesus said these things are going to come to pass, we better be ready to see them come to pass. No nation has faced such overwhelming opposition by much of the global community as has that little nation no larger than the state of New Jersey, and yet to that very piece of land do all the eyes of the world focus. Turn to Zechariah for just a moment. I'm, I'm really setting up something here going into our last part of chapter 10, so humor me. <laughs> Follow along with me. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 2 says, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall happen in that day. And I want you to mark that little phrase in your Bible, in that day. That is going to become a very important phrase throughout not only today's teaching, but in many teachings in the book of Isaiah and throughout the prophets. And it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone, and the King James a burdensome stone for all peoples. All who would heave it away will surely be cut to pieces. Though all nations of the earth are gathered against it, take for just a moment those two verses that I just read in Zechariah and realize that the first statement, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples, a cup of trembling, as it were. That has already been happening with the modern nation of Israel. From the very inception of their, of, of, of their, of their being a nation, of their being a country, recognized as a country by one vote in the United Nations in May of 1948. From the very day that they became a nation, there were Arab countries that were ready to destroy them. And today we could actually say that they are drunk with a desire to destroy Israel off the face of the earth. The people of Israel, because they want their land. But folks, God gave them the land. God gave Israel the land to no one else. And you'll notice the next phrase that says it shall happen in that day that I'll make, a Jerusalem, uh, make Jerusalem a, he a very heavy stone or a burdensome stone for all peoples. Now, the drunkenness part of the, for the surrounding nations, the uh, burdensome stone for all peoples is the united nations as it were. All nations. I'll get to that in just a moment. Go now to verses 8 and 9 of the same chapter. And you'll notice here it says in that day, and there's that phrase again. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The one who is feeble among them in that day, there's that phrase again, shall be like David. And the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. It shall be in that day, there's that phrase again, that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Folks, that's happening today. That happened in 1967, in June of 1967, what they call the Six-Day War, where troops from Jordan and Syria and Egypt all wanted to take the city of Jerusalem. In fact, they had the city of Jerusalem. It was Israel and the forces of Israel that overcame great odds to take the city. But because of world pressure, they had to divide the city. 
in Yom Kippur of 1973, the most holy day for the Jews, while they were all in prayer and in synagogue, once again, the Arab nations attacked. Caught them off guard this time. 3,000 people died. That would be, in comparison, that would be like about 150,000 people in our country dying. 3,000 people died before they were able to rally, get together, and then finally destroy the armies that came against them. They wanted to wipe them out that time, too. Folks, this is a miracle of God. You have to see it as that. Their army is, is, is not as big as our army. And yet God rallies around them. They could have been destroyed. And yet at the end of that 1973 Yom Kippur War, did you know that the troops of Israel were actually in the city gates of Damascus, Syria, and of Cairo, Egypt? Until once again, the world pressure caused them to back off. Why am I saying all of this? Because you see, God has His hand upon His people. And I want to encourage you today to pray for the peace of Jerusalem as the Bible encourages us to do. But I want you to pray especially for your own hearts to trust that what God says in His Word is true. That the very center of prophecy is the nation of Israel and the very city of prophecy is Jerusalem itself. We're going to talk about that a lot more as we go on, but I, I, I mentioned that I wanted you to notice the phrase in that day throughout this passage in Zechariah's prophecy because it links this to what is known as the day of the Lord. <clears throat> now, the day of the Lord, if we were to do a study of the day of the Lord, and we have done it before, but, and, and we'll get into it more as we get into the book of uh, Isaiah. But it is a time of great judgment. The day of the Lord is a time of great judgment. It isn't, it isn't a single 24-hour day. It, in fact, spans a, a good seven-year period of time. But this is the, the time of great judgment, not only in dealing with the completion of God's chastisement on the people of Israel, but also the greater judgment upon the nations that have come against Israel and Jerusalem. And through it all, a remnant of Israel will, will escape, and a remnant of Israel will return. And so when the judgments of God are being poured out upon the earth in the dark days of the great tribulation that is yet to come, a remnant of the Jews will turn to the Lord in deep repentance and in living faith. Now, we've been in the book of Zechariah, and you can read on and and you'll find that there in Zechariah tells us that they will see the one whom they have pierced. And these will prove the greatness of God's mercies and the unfailing character of His promises, the remnant. Now this is what ties us back to Isaiah chapter 10. The remnant that is mentioned in Isaiah 10, verse 20 and verse 21 no longer relying for their help on the powers that persecuted and failed them in the hour of their need, as when Ahaz, the king of Judah, turned first to Assyria and then to Egypt in his desperate troubles. He's turning to the enemy for help. 
they will find their protection and resource in God Himself. You see, even today, many Jewish people in Israel, not not all of them, but many of them, many of them are, are, are believing that they have to get their strength really from themselves. A lot of them are agnostic. Many of them are atheists. They don't even believe in God. And the one thing that brought them to that particular decision in their life was the Holocaust. Where was God? Where was God when six million Jews were exterminated? Now there are many, many people, of course, that believe. They believe in God, the God of Israel. But what's the other problem? The other problem is that they believe in the God of Israel. They do not believe that Yeshua or Jesus is the Messiah. So they will accept anyone other than Jesus who comes in the form of a deliverer. That would be the Antichrist later. We'll talk about that in another time. But what we're finding out here in this particular chapter is that the Lord told Judah not to trust in Assyria as their deliverer when the threat from Syria and Israel came. That takes us back to Isaiah chapter 7. When you go back to Isaiah chapter 7, of course, Assyria was coming to destroy Syria and Israel, the northern kingdom. But, but Judah, the southern kingdom, wasn't to trust in Assyria. The Lord promised that He would deliver them from Syria and Israel and that they didn't have to trust in others. But, but Ahaz, king of Judah, didn't take God's counsel and ended up trusting in Assyria. Again, you can go back to chapter 7. And the Lord would then use Assyria to defeat Syria and Israel as He had promised, but He would also use Assyria to judge Judah. Now understand that the nation of Israel is divided. There's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom had all the bad kings who were, who were not faithful to God. The southern kingdom had some bad kings and some good kings. And so the nation being divided, Syria and Israel had entered into a pact against Judah. Assyria comes to judge them for doing that. But Judah was not to trust in Assyria, and nonetheless they did. And now the Lord wants to prepare Judah for the attack from Assyria, reminding them that he is still in charge and that they can still trust in him. You see, they're going to sweep get Syria, they're going to get Israel, the northern kingdom, and then they're just going to come right down to get the southern kingdom. And God is telling them, trust in me. But instead they were trusting in Assyria. Well, those are our deliverers because they delivered us from Syria and and, and Israel. So are we not seeing then, understand this, are we not seeing then the remarkable grace and the long-suffering of God? The remarkable grace and long-suffering of God. He says, trust in me. Look to me. Even though you haven't been, look to me now. I'm still here. Think about that in your own life. How many times God is calling you, calling you, convicting you of sin, convicting you, and we keep turning away, and then we fall into some, some sin, some major problem in our life, and God is saying, I've done everything I can to get you to turn to me. So now you're down and what does he do he doesn't turn away he's still there and then in our worst moments we cry out to God and God picks us up but why do we wait so long why did Israel wait so long 
What's wrong with us sometimes? I point up here because I think of cabezones, you know. We're uh, headstrong is what I mean to say. Uh, stubborn. Stiff-necked. God is saying, turn to me. Haven't I shown you my grace? Haven't I shown you my mercy? You know, we wouldn't give a second thought to the Lord if He had said to them, you want to trust in the Assyrians and not me? Fine. You're on your own. I'll see you. I mean, we wouldn't give God a second thought. Why? Because He made Himself available and they didn't take Him up on it. But God didn't say that. Even in the midst of the judgment they deserved, which was brought by and through the Assyrians, God wanted to comfort His people and He wanted to give them hope. How often is He doing that with you? Folks, He's doing that with you and towards you because He wants you to repent of your sins and to turn back to Him. He wants you to turn away from those things. You see, it, it, it takes action on our part. You know, there'll be some people that say, well, you know, Jesus died on the cross already. His blood has already been shed. I know that. I know that when He died for the forgiveness of our sins, that He forgave us and, and all. But when we still sin and we're still, you know, uh, uh, bound to that sin, what, we just, you know, act as if nothing happened? It takes an active Repentance. It is, I mean, folks, let's face it, you know, a husband and wife did not only say on their wedding day, I love you, and then that was it. Right? I mean, we want to expect it on day one and day two and day three and on and on. We have a problem then in the marriage, right? The marriage has some little ups and downs, and then all of a sudden, you know, a, a person does something like a husband does something to the wife. Usually it's that way. A husband does something to the wife. Finally, the husband gets convicted, and he goes to his wife and he says, Let's go on. You already love me, right? You love me a lot. You, you know, can overlook all of this. Let's act as if it never happened. And we're okay. And inside the wife, the wife is saying, you stupid idiot. I love you, yes, but I'm going to love you to death here in a minute. Right? You know, the point that I'm trying to make is, if we're convicted, we come and we say, you know what, honey, I am sorry. I'm sorry for what I put you through. I didn't know. What I, I, please forgive me. I do love you. I, I don't want this to go on this way. Oh, man, that makes a whole difference, doesn't it? You don't come and say, well, you know, honey, you know that I love you because I told you that 12, 12 years ago, 20 years ago. I don't have to tell you again. Well, yes, you do. You know, Jesus loves us so much. He tells us every day. If you read the Word of God every day, you know what? He tells us every day. He loves us. Are we telling Him every day? Or are we just saying, well, Lord, you already know I love you. I said that to you 30 years ago when I got saved. And then I can do whatever I want. No. 
So, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to get you to see the, the, the mindset of a God that loves His people so much. He wants them to be comforted. He wants them to have hope. But He wants them to come to Him. Pour their hearts out to Him. And trust Him. Psalm 37, verses 3 through 5. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on His faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and He shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him, and, and He shall bring it to pass. That's the way God wants us to come. Just trust Him. Isn't that what our understanding of faith really is? Is to trust the Lord? We have faith in God that He's going to give us everything that we need for life and godliness through Jesus Christ. We trust Him. But then it says, did you notice trust in the Lord and do good? It doesn't just say trust in the Lord. We have a responsibility in our love relationship with Christ. Trust in God and do good. Psalm 115, verses 9-13. through 13. Oh, Israel, listen, God is speaking to His people. He says, Oh, Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Oh, house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Do you think He's trying to drive home a point here? The Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. He wants to bless. Trust Him. Psalm 118, verses 8-10. through 10. Great passage of Scripture. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better. Verse 9, the very center of the whole Bible. This one verse. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. All nations surround me. All nations surrounded me. But in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. Sounds kind of like where we're going in this other passage here. Lastly, Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. You almost, Most all of you know this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. Isn't that a great statement? In all your ways, acknowledge Him. That makes us check our ways. What are our ways like? Are we acknowledging God in our ways? <laughs> in all your ways, acknowledge Him and He shall direct your paths. Tough times, folks. Tough times can bring us back to the Lord. Amen? How many of you know that? Tough times can bring us back to the Lord. They can be like a fire in your life. When fire comes into contact with wood, it burns it up. But when it comes into contact with metal, what does it do? It purifies and it strengthens it. But here's a question for you. Are, you, are, are your hard times making you bitter? Or are your hard times making you better? Are your hard times making you bitter about things? Or are your hard times making you better about those things? Are you allowing your hard times to drive you closer to the Lord? Or are you still trying to run from the Lord? See, you're either running away from Him or you're running toward Him. 
Are you, are you running from God or are you running to God? That's the question here. What was the nation of Israel doing? They should have been running toward the Lord. What were they doing? They were running away from the Lord. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of that most beautiful, one of the most beautiful stories in all of Scripture. The the parable of the prodigal son. I don't want to go through the whole part of that, but I want to give you a portion of it. Verse 20 of Luke 15. And I want you to see this. You know, this is after, this is after, you know, the, uh, the son just, you know, kind of wakens up to, you know, what's going on in his life. And, you know, he's realizes that he's living with pigs. And he's eating out of the pig's trough. That's his food. How down he went in his life. After he, he demanded his inheritance. And, and in his demand of his inheritance, what did he tell his father? You're as good as dead to me. Give me my inheritance. And so in verse 20 it says, And he arose and he came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. The father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and be merry for this my son was dead and is alive again and he was lost and is now found. And they began to be merry. And this is what the Lord desires of His people. Many times we go off on our own. We go in our own way and we say, Hey, that pig trough doesn't look so bad. We don't actually say that. And we don't actually look at it as a pig's trough. On the outside, you know, the enemy can make it look pretty good. Looks enticing. Looks wonderful. Look at the way the world entices us today. Billboard ads and magazines and internet and, I mean, you know, on and on and on. TV, you know, ads are so cunning. Getting us to pay attention to these things. At times, gets us to pay attention to things that we ought not to be getting so attentive about. Right? We fall for the trap, and what happens? Then all of a sudden we find ourselves in a pig's trough. And it doesn't smell very good. It doesn't taste very good. It doesn't feel very good. And all we can smell is the wickedness of sin. When we come to ourselves, we turn and we look to God. He said, He's, gonna, he's not going to take us back. And yet one step toward Him. Two steps toward Him. And He runs to us. You see, we have a God that loves us so much. 
He wants to keep us from the pig's trough. He wants us to enjoy Him. Our problem is we kind of like a little bit of both. But the dilemma is He keeps smelling the pig's trough on you. Yet what did the father do with his son? When the son brought his repentant heart to his father, the father fell on the most unclean, the stinkiest, the grimiest, the dirtiest of them all. And he kissed him. And to some extent, our minds would have to see that the tears of the father washes his son clean. All the father sees is his heir. And he says, get the ring, get the robe, get the shoes. My son who was dead is alive. My son who was lost is found. We cannot downplay the love of God for you. Don't clean up for my sake, for your family's sake, only. (laughs) Thought I was just going to say, don't clean up for them. No. Can't clean yourself up anyway. Give yourself to the one who cleansed you on the cross. Find yourself back in His arms. And then God will take care of the rest with everyone else. Let them see Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's returning. That makes the difference. And that is what we find in verses 21 through 23 of our text. It says, The remnant will return. The remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. That's a tremendous statement. They're not just returning to, you know, some relative or some friend or some boss. They're returning to the mighty God. And who is the mighty God, by the way? Remember what we learned about him in chapter 9? Wonderful counselor. Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, that's who we return to. The remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people, O Israel, be as the sand of the sea, a remnant of them will return. Only a remnant. The destruction decreed shall overflow with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a determined end in the midst of all the land. The Lord promised His people, you are going through this now because you will not trust in Me. But I am going to change you so that you trust Me again and you will once again depend on the Lord. You will once again depend upon Me. The Lord will always preserve His remnant. The Lord will always preserve a remnant. I've got to tell you this. As big as the 
visible church is, now we've talked about the visible and the invisible church, but as big as the visible church is, do not be fooled into thinking that everybody who calls himself a Christian is going to be in heaven. As big as a visible church may be, there really is only a remnant of true believers. That's the invisible church. Only God knows who they are. Only God knows who we are. God knows every heart and every mind. There are a lot of people out there calling themselves Christians today that are teaching heresies, they're teaching false things, they're false prophets, they're false teachers. And God has given us His Word so that we can be able to discern. He's given us His Spirit so we can be able to discern what is false and what is true. And so don't just think that because a person goes to a church or goes into a building of some sort that, oh, he's safe. The building may keep us safe from the rain, but it ain't going to keep us safe from hellfire if we're not right with God. The Lord will always preserve His remnant. This was the meaning of Isaiah's firstborn son. Remember him? Shear Yashub. Because his name means a remnant shall return. Paul quotes this in Romans 9, verses 27 and 28. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved, for he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. Even Paul makes reference to the remnant. And then Isaiah here in his prophecy says, The destruction decreed shall overflow with righteousness. When God allows destruction, whether outright judgment or loving correction, it is always righteous and never unfair. In fact, His judgment overflows with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a determined end. That's another phrase that we find in our text. An end of what? An end of Judah's trust in nations like Assyria. Quit trusting in these people. Quit trusting because they have more horses. Quit trusting because they have more chariots. Quit trusting because they have more uh, stronger and sturdier kinds of weapons. Trust in me. They will never again depend on him who defeated him. That's what he's saying. They will never again depend upon those who actually defeat them. The Assyrians defeated the Assyrians defeated them. But they will never again trust in them. But you see, that has to translate all the way over into the prophecy that is to come yet. We'll talk about that in just a moment. If you'll notice in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 24, it says, Therefore thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, do not be afraid of the Assyrian. He shall strike you with a rod and lift up his staff against you in the manner of Egypt. In other words, he's going to come and he's going to hit you hard. And yet... A very little while, for yet a very little while, and the indignation will cease, as, my, as will my anger in their destruction. In other words, their anger, God's anger toward Israel because of their disobedience and because of their not trusting. And the Lord of hosts will stir up a scourge for him like the slaughter of Midian. And this is for Assyria. He will stir up a scourge for him like the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb, as his rod was on the sea. So will he lift it up in the manner of Egypt. It shall come to pass in that day that his burden will be taken away from your shoulder and his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be destroyed because of the anointing oil. 
I think you all will agree with me with this next statement I'm going to make. Fear is a part of life. Fear is a part of life. We have to have a certain type of fear, certain built-in fears, to be able to stay alive in, 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 in this life. So fear is a part of life. We're taught as little children when we're going to cross the street to look both ways. That's a natural fear to make sure that you check things out. You know, they have to have that kind of fear. Fear is an important part of life. God tells us, don't go in this direction, don't go in that direction. We should have a fear of following after things that God doesn't want us to go for. And go toward. So there are good fears and there are bad fears. It is good to be afraid for your family's safety. It is bad to be afraid of hurting someone's feelings and they hold it over you to manipulate you to do what you don't want to do. That's a bad fear. So the Assyrians in our lives can sure seem big. And many times we fear those things that hurt us and that, that come after us and manipulate us in this life. They're the Assyrians of our life. But our God is bigger than that. Our God is bigger than those fears. Our God is bigger than those things that cause that fear to come to us. Our God is much bigger than that. John says in 1 John 4, 4, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because He who is in you is greater than he who is in this world. You know, we oftentimes focus on the last part of that verse, because He who is in you is greater than He who is in the world. And we should. But look at the first part. It's a reminder. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them. You're of God. You belong to God. Did you not know that or have you forgotten that? Don't forget that you belong to God. When you know that you are God, you don't have to fear the things of this world because God said, I'll be with you. Fear me instead in reverence and respect and awe. You know, we can always be comforted by the fact that God will never leave His people to the mercy of their enemies. Aren't you thankful for that? That God will never leave His people to the mercy of, his, of their enemies. Even when He uses the Assyrians to bring judgment and correction, He is still in charge. He's still in charge. God will take care of the Assyrians like He took care of Midian at the rock of Oreb. Turn to Judges chapter 7. Judges chapter 7, dealing with Gideon. And how Gideon deals with the Midianites. Notice in Judges 7 verse 24, Then Gideon sent messengers throughout all the mountains of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites, and seize from them the watering places as far as Beth Bara in the Jordan. And then all the men of Ephraim gathered together and seized the watering places as far as Beth Bara and the Jordan. And they captured two princes of the Midianites, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeb. They killed at the winepress of Zeb. They pursued Midian and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon on the other side of the Jordan. And so, remember the, the whole situation here. The, the, the number of people that that Gideon had on his, in his army. 300 against thousands and thousands upon thousands. 
And so as miraculous and complete as Gideon's victory was, that is how miraculous and complete God's judgment on Assyria would be. It would be that complete. And as it happened, this is exactly the case. And this happened around 681 B.C., 2 Kings chapter 19. Turn there. We have to see this. This is incredible. Even though I don't like the word incredible because it kind of says, I can't believe this. Well, we should believe it. 2 Kings 19 verse 35 says, And it came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out. One angel, folks. You got it? You got the picture? Everybody got the picture? Let me see. You got the picture? Just do this. Okay, all right. One angel and killed, went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses, all dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away, returned home, and remained at Nineveh. I think I'm out of here, he said. And now it came to pass, as he was worshipping in the temple of Nishroch, his god, that his son Adramalech and Sharezer struck him down with a sword. He got killed by his own kids. And they escaped into the land of Ararat. And then Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. That all took place because of that one night. The one night when the angel of the Lord killed 185,000. Now, 185,000 troops seems, or seem like, a, like an incredibly huge army to face. But they were taken care of by one angel. And you have to remember that the Word of God says the angel of the Lord, Psalm 34 verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around all those who fear Him and delivers them. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear Him and delivers them. You have to fear the Lord. You've got to trust the Lord. The the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It is the beginning of knowledge. It is the beginning of the knowledge of the Holy One to fear the Lord, to respect and reverence Him, live our lives in such a way that honors Him. You see, Assyria would indeed trouble and oppress Judah, but not forever. Aren't you glad that the things that troubled you a few years ago, let's say. You you were a believer in Jesus Christ, but you were going through some troubles and trials. And these things troubled you. But today, they don't trouble you. Why? Because God took care of those things for you. you. First of all, did you give Him thanks back then? And are you thankful that as He took care of those things back then, that He's going to take care of whatever you're being troubled with right now? But you've got to keep your heart right with God, you see. You've got to keep yourself right with the Lord. So many people today make demands upon God. God, you should be taking care of me. They say, well, you're not doing what I tell you. If we would listen to God's Word, if we would pray, if we would seek His face, if we would turn from our wicked ways, guess what God would do? He'd heal us. Help us in our situations. He'd get us through it. 
So Assyria is no longer going to trouble Judah. It would trouble them for a time, but not forever. Instead, the yoke would be destroyed because of the anointing. The anointing. Because of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit among Judah, the yoke of bondage would be destroyed. There are those who believe that the phrase, because of the anointing oil, because of the anointing oil, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is really being referred to here and should be seen as because of the anointed one, the Messiah. The Messiah being the source of our victory, the source of our freedom from the yoke of bondage. Romans 8 verse 2, Paul says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 56 and 57, The sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, it is the Messiah who breaks the yoke of bondage. It is the Messiah who has broken the yoke of bondage for us when He took upon Himself the sins of the world and hung on that cross. So what an interesting thought The yoke will be destroyed because of the anointing oil, but more importantly, it was the anointed one. We now get a list of places in verses 28 through 32. Let's read this quickly. We're almost done. He has come to Ayath, which actually was the area of Ai back in Joshua. He has come to Ayath, he has passed Migron, at Mishmash he has attended to his equipment. They have gone along the ridge, they have taken up lodging at Geba. Ramah is afraid, Gebeah of Saul has fled. Lift up your voice, O daughter of Galim, cause it to be heard as far as Laish, O poor Anathoth. Madmena has fled, the inhabitants of Gebim seek refuge, as yet he will remain at Nob that day, he will shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. A lot of names there. not going to cover anything at all about those names. I'm going to tell you what all that is, generally speaking. Because of the word of comfort and encouragement in the previous section, Judah might think that God wouldn't send judgment among them at all. But this passage... Oh, by the way, let me give you a little illustration about that. You're in school... And you didn't study for your test. So the night before, you're trying to cram. And, and you, you know, you start praying. He said, Lord God, if it be thy will. And he starts, you know, praying in, in King James English. Lord God, if it be thy will, taketh away the test. Let the teacher be sick. And not at school. But you know, you go to school the next day and guess who's there? More healthy than you. 
is the teacher with a test, and you didn't study right, so you really struggled. It was coming, you see. You might have felt good praying, but you had a responsibility, and you had to keep it. Okay, with that in mind. <laughs> so Judas, you know, might have thought, well, God's trying to comfort us. Maybe they're not coming. They're coming! That's what this little passage is about. With a specific mention of the many cities of Judah is meant to show that God will indeed allow the invasion of the Assyrians even though He will restore them after the attack. The listing flows from north to south and Nob, being one of the last words mentioned, Nob is right on the outskirts of Jerusalem and that is where Assyria would eventually meet its match. That is where Assyria would meet its match. 185,000, remember? There is an interesting picture here as to how close the Assyrian army would actually come. Could this be the picture of the end times with the armies of the world surrounding Jerusalem as it will be in the last days? I want you to go back to Zechariah, but this time I want you to look at chapter 14. And there in chapter 14, verses 1 through 4, it says, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. You see, it's coming. There might be some revivals here or there. There may be some uh, people respond to the grace of God. But nonetheless, the day of the Lord is coming. It's inevitable. And your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. And then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as He fights in the day of battle. And in that day His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. The destruction that God has decreed against Assyria in righteousness will also be decreed against the Antichrist and his armies in the last days. And that is why I wanted to read that. Because just as the Assyrians would send emissaries to taunt the leaders of Jerusalem in verse 32, where it tells us there that they, they, uh, you know, they uh, shaked his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion. So the world is busy doing the same toward Israel in our day and time. They're shaking their fists at Mount Zion. According to Dave Hunt's book, Judgment Day, and I quote, the United Nations has spent one-third of its time either deliberating and arguing about or denouncing Israel because of its hold on Jerusalem. A tiny nation that has one one one-thousandth of the world's population has occupied one-third of the UN's time. Folks, these are incredible statistics. Listen. More than 60,000, listen, more than 60,000 individual votes have been cast in the UN against Israel. More than 60,000, and that's counting. That that was up to the time that he wrote this. After that, I'm sure it's been a lot more, especially in the last few months because of what happened with with, uh, with Lebanon. And by the way, Lebanon is mentioned a lot too, and we'll get to that another time. But that, that is a burden indeed, exactly as the Bible foretold, you see. It is happening now. 
The nations of the world are gathering together against Israel. It's an incredible thing. You know how many nations, 191 nations, all vie for a place on the Security Council. Only one nation is not allowed to be on the Security Council. Do you know who it is? Israel. There are, other, there are other committees and groups within the United Nations that 191 nations all vie to be a part of. You know which one is not allowed? Israel. Zechariah 12, verse 3, I quoted it earlier. I'm going to quote it again. It shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all the peoples. All who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. And so to close, the Lord promises that His judgment will extend even to those of high stature. Think, go back now, let's finish Isaiah verses, uh, chapter 10, verses 33 and 34. Because it says, Behold the Lord, the Lord of hosts, will lop off the bow with terror. Those of high stature will be hewn down, and the haughty will be humbled. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with iron. And notice this, and Lebanon will fall by the mighty one. They got pretty close to falling few months ago. A mighty forest seems invincible and seems as if it will stand forever, but the Lord can cut it down. Even so, the Lord will cut down the proud and those of high stature among Judah, and that is around Judah, you see. All that will be left in, in a once mighty forest will be stumps. Lebanon was proud of their cedars, folks. The forests of Lebanon were known for their large, mighty cedar trees. But God will judge the proud among Judah and all the nations for that matter. For the bigger they are, the harder they will fall. And right now, Lebanon is in the grasp of Hezbollah. But nonetheless, they haven't done anything to get rid of Hezbollah. They will be judged. I want to read from the King James Version in that same verse, chapter 12, verse 3 of Zechariah. And in that day I will make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. And notice what it says. All that burden themselves, all that burden themselves with it shall be cut to pieces, or cut in pieces, though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. That's the prophecy. God will protect his people, Israel. This is what is on the horizon today for Israel. So my question to you today is, are you getting ready? Are we getting ready for the Lord's return? Are we getting ready for the Lord's return? 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, we read the, first, the verses previous to this. But it says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Let's get busy with God. Let's get busy for God. I want to tell you something. And I don't want it to sound, you know, legalistic. I just, I just want you to get the perspective here. A lot of people today getting ready. Even now, they're getting ready for Super Bowl Sunday. Think about it. I mean, we're rabid about what teams are going out there, man. I, I mean, I talk to people all the time. 
Man, did you see the Bears? Man, did you see the Ravens? Man, did you see this? Man, the Cowboys won? Wow, man, whoa. You know, and they're getting, but they're getting ready. They're getting ready for the Super Bowl, right? We, we, we take weeks to get ready. Boy, I mean, we, you know, we go out there. Pat Golf has a big sale so we can buy the biggest TV that we've ever seen because we want to see the Super Bowl. We want those guys to be as big in, the, in our screen in our house, you know. But you know what? We need to be getting ready because Jesus can come at any moment. That's much more important than the Super Bowl. If the Lord tarries and after church on that Sunday, I get to go home and, you know, eat a sandwich and watch the Super Bowl, I'll do that. And then I've got to come back, you know, back to work. But you know the thing about it is, if the Lord tarries, that's not important to me. What's important to me is that you and I will be ready for Jesus Christ. That's much more important. So if you want, pray for the Cowboys. They need it anyway. But pray more that people will not miss Christ when he comes. And then pray, God, what can I do to bring the gospel to the lost? Because no one, you know, God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. God doesn't take pleasure in it. We don't want anyone to go to hell for eternity. We want people to go to heaven and be with Jesus. Let's pray.